The Why Me Project, an exclusive presentation of Faith Strong Today. It has been brought to our attention that depending on the platform that you listen to, you can no longer hear some of our previous episodes. Some of our favorite episodes. Some of the ones where people would reach out and say, hey, listen, I can't believe that you talked to insert whatever name here. And honestly, it makes us a little sad that you can't go back in time and have a listen because the stories were really incredible. We reference a lot of times, oh, we had a chance to talk with so-and-so in the past. And if you can't go back, then it's kind of just, oh. So we wanted to bring some of those guests, some of those former guests back into the spotlight. We're going to call it like a, a rerun, I think. A Why Me Project rerun. Do you remember those? I do. Back in the day, or you used to throw the tape into the VCR and <laughs> oh, we're dating ourselves. We are, but uh, a rerun was the opportunity to rewatch one of your favorite episodes. Now everything's so accessible. Well, we thought it was. Yeah, exactly. So without further ado, here's your Why Me Project rerun. Some know him as the machine gun preacher. We know him as Sam Childers, my friend. How are you? Good, good. Well, we like to ask this skill testing question to kick things off, Sam. Who are you and where did you come from? You know, I'm from the U.S. I was born in North Dakota. My dad was part Indian, and uh, I was born into a very good family. Mom and dad both were born again, spirit-filled. But at a young age, I made some bad choices. And I think a lot of times, especially in the U.S., if somebody goes bad, they always want to blame it on the parents. But I, I can't do that in... in uh, at all inside of my story. I was uh, born into the best family you ever could. But at a young age, I made some bad choices, and I found myself smoking marijuana, smoking cigarettes at 11 years old. By the time I was 13 years old, I'm doing acid, doing all kinds of drugs, 14 years old, snorting cocaine. By the time I was 15, I had a drug addiction, putting a needle in my arm every day. During this time, I knew God was real. It's just in my head, I thought I didn't need him. And then finally, uh, I was way up in my 20s, and uh, uh, I got into a really bad bar fight. People got shot, people got stabbed, and I almost got killed. That was the day that I made up my mind. I didn't lift my hands in the air and give my life to Christ. I'm done living this life. And then it was two years later, I walked into a church and gave my life to Christ. I mean, if you live in a good home, you have these Christian parents, how do you go down the wrong path? i got to blame a lot of it on the U.S. school system. You know, our, our schools in the U.S., and I don't think it's just in the U.S. I found that it's, it's, it's almost around the world. We start to look up to other kids and older kids, and then we start getting this in our mind that we want to fit in. We want to be a part of that crowd. And uh, I always describe it like the lunchroom inside of the school. You, you know, there's always that lunchroom table that we just wished we could do anything to sit at and eat with those other kids, you know, because we think they're cool, you know. I wanted the older kids, younger kids. I wanted everyone to know who I was and like me. So I started smoking cigarettes and marijuana, and all of a sudden I found myself fitting in. By the time I was 14 years old, I'm snorting coke, and, you know, everyone in school knows me, everybody likes me. But then by the time I was 15, I had a serious drug addiction, and more than likely, I didn't like you. 
you know, and then I ended up quitting school. And, and uh, I mean, from there, everything went really bad. I mean, I started selling drugs. I started running drugs uh, across the U.S. I mean, I'm not talking about little bits. I mean, I'm talking about a lot of drugs, you know. I'm assuming, obviously, your parents knew, or what was your parents' reaction? You know, my mom was like the nicest, most naive woman in the world. I, think, you know? I always, I always describe my mom as, uh, I think she come out of the womb uh, speaking in tongues. I think she only sinned three times in her whole life when she gave birth to me and my two brothers. But back when I was 16 years old, I was riding with a bike club. And we would come by the house so I could pick up some clothes or something, because I moved out at 15. She would come out on the porch, and I'm with these big, burly bikers, and and she'd come out on the porch, and she'd say, oh, can I give you boys some cookies? (laughs) She was always baking. Mom, they don't eat cookies, you know, and they'd they'd look at me and say, shut up, Sam. Yeah, we'll take some, Mrs. (laughs) Childers. And then she'd come out, you know, and she'd say, would you boys like some milk with them cookies? And I'd say, Mom, they don't drink milk. And they'd say, shut up, Sam. Yes, Mrs. Childers, we'll have milk, you know. She treated everybody like they were little kids, and she loved on, I don't care who I would bring home. My dad pretty much knew everything. Me and my dad was very, very close. He was a pretty rough guy before he became born again, and he would always talk to me. And he would always come up and tell me, boy, you better change your ways. Somebody's going to kill you one of these days. I mean, he'd always tell me that, you know. And uh, he he was brought up in Kentucky in a pretty rough time, you know. So he's seen a lot of bad things happen. When you're in the fight to that moment where essentially you could have died, what was going on in your mind? You know, I believe that anybody anybody that was a fighter or a scrapper, you don't really think about things like that at the time, you know. Now, at the time that I was in that, I was in a really bad bar fight. This is what changed me. There was people in the bar that was laying on the ground and, or on the floor. The only thing I had in my mind is if I get out, make it to that door i'm done living this life you know and then i made it to the door of the bar room opened up the door and as soon as i opened the door people started shooting at me they were fighting in the parking lot oh goodness so then i said if i make it to my car i'm done living this life you know and i made it to my car but driving home that night i never had a problem with dying but i always had a problem with what am i willing to die for you know, and it finally came to, came, or I should say, I came to my senses that night. And I made up my mind, I don't want to die for a drug deal going bad. I don't want to die for uh, a gang member shooting me. I don't want to die for, okay, like a jealous husband or something. You know, I, if I'm going to die for something, I want it to be worthwhile. Was it difficult to walk away from that lifestyle? I was probably in it as deep as you could ever go. And I'm going to tell you yes and no. See, it was hard when I didn't want to make up my mind. But I guarantee you, you know, a lot of times we go to rehabs. Now, I I hope everyone can hear me on this. Rehabs are good. But a rehab cannot take addiction from you. A lot of times we tell people, you need to come to the church, go to the altar, let Jesus take it from you. He doesn't work that way. He could, but he's not a genie in a bottle. You know, what it boils down to is you have to make up your mind, I'm done. 
the thing about Jesus, he'll never leave you, he'll never forsake you, he'll always be there. Anytime you call upon him, he's there, you know. It's all up to you. You have to make up your mind. And I made up my mind. Now, I did struggle a little bit. I, I, uh, I smoked pot for a while after that. Uh, I drank for a while after that. But it was two years after that night that I made up my mind when I walked into a church and said, God, here I am. One of the things, you know, a lot of people, they, they think, well, I'm, I'm so messed up. I did this. I did that. You know, God's not going to want me. I think the biggest thing that you got to realize, that's when you want to give yourself away. That's when you want to give yourself to God, when you're all messed up, you know. When, when, when you think you're at your lowest, you know, that's when you say, God, here I am. And that's when he changes you, molds you, and crushes you, and builds you back just the way he wants you. And I've always told people, you know, people always think, well, you don't know what I've done in my past. God wants to use your past for his future. Well, how do you go from, you know, that lifestyle, you're kind of two years, you find church, and then you end up in East Africa? You know, God is a very clever God, and he has a (laughs) sense of humor. Yes, he does. (laughs) You know, the second night, I, I gave my life to the Lord, June of 1992. And the second night, I went back to the same church that was in a revival, And the same preacher started prophesying over me. And he prophesied that I would be going to Africa. And I'm thinking in my head, I ain't going to Africa. I'm a white man. Why would I go to Africa? (laughs) And then he he started prophesying that I was going to be in a war. And, I mean, I'm thinking in my head, I'm not going to be in no war. I mean, this is crazy. Finally, I, I was so angry. I mean, I just gave my life to the Lord, okay? And I was so angry, and I was a pretty mean guy. I figured, you know what? I'm going to have to beat the snot out of this preacher. So naturally, you can't do it in the church. So I went outside of the church, and I waited and waited <laughs> on this preacher to come out. Finally, he comes walking through the door. I start cussing him out, cursing him out. And you know how them preachers are when you get upset with them, you know? They get a little smirk on their face, you know? <laughs> And he starts smiling at me, and, and I, I told him, I'm not going to Africa. Don't tell me I'm going to Africa. And he would say, we'll see. You know, and I'd say, well, I'm not going to be in no war. And he'd say, we'll see. Well, in the fall of 1998, I found myself in Sudan, Africa, on a mission trip. I went for five weeks. And, you know, I believe that God will allow us to see things. For us to make the right decision, which a lot of times we don't, and then God will allow us to experience things for us to make the right decision. Well, I was in an area where the rebels raided a village, and there was bodies of people laying everywhere. Well, I come across the body of a small child, may have been dead for seven hours, eight hours, that stepped on a landmine. And the child, when the child stepped on the landmine, from the waist down was gone. That's when I knew I had to do something to help those people. And this was my very first trip in. I stood over that body and I said, God, I'll do whatever it takes to help these people. I didn't realize what I was saying, but here I am 23 years later. I live in Africa full time. Started one orphanage with, uh, I just had a mosquito net hanging in a tree. And started the orphanage with nothing. And now it's one of the largest working orphanages in South Sudan. 
that was never shut down during war. It was always open. We never evacuated. Now there's eight projects that deal with from little children all the way up to young adults. What was then your goal? Was your goal to beat this war? Was your goal to start an orphanage? Where was your mind as soon as you decided that you're going to do something? I kind of don't like goals, you know, because I think when we set goals, when we're especially when we give our life to Christ, when we set goals in our life, that means we're only going so far. So I'm not a goal-setting person, you know. I'm I'm the kind of person that that uh, I believe that God won't give us any more than we can handle. And uh, so I try to do the very best I can every day. I never dreamed that our work would have got as big as it has. We have drilled over 40 wells over the years. We, we have repaired over 30 wells. We have built seven schools from the footer up. We feed over 12,000 meals a day right now. And it keeps growing and growing. We have nine businesses in Africa. Something that a lot of people don't realize is if you are 15 years old in an orphanage, that's the age they'll ask you to leave. 15 or 16 years old, you're out. More than 70% of those children go into prostitution because they don't have a skill or trade in their life, and they're not fully educated. So that's why we started building businesses. We have restaurants, we have hotels, we have bed and breakfast. So we work over 440 people a day right now. And the biggest reason is, is to teach a skill in the trade. So, I mean, when you first arrive in 98, there's the, there's the war going on. And I mean, for somebody like me who's very unfamiliar, how is life in Sudan now? South Sudan is still in the middle of another civil war now. About uh, five days ago, they signed a peace treaty, but the the rebels are still active in the bush, and as that means, there's still people being killed. But there has been a peace treaty signed in the last four or five days. But the U.N. still says if a miracle does not happen uh, in South Sudan, there's nearly uh, 7 million people on the verge of starvation. Also... Four million of them, seven, are little children. So I think there's something we all can do, you know. Mm-hmm. But there's, there's a lot of problems in South Sudan right now. It's a very unstable country. If something doesn't happen, the country will probably end up collapsing. I just kind of want to rewind a bit just to when you, you know, saw the young, the little boy and you said, you know, you want to do something. What happened next? Is that kind of when you started getting that nickname <clears throat> Machine Gun Preacher and just kind of... You know, <laughs> I kind of went slow in the, in the work. You know, I think sometimes we jump into stuff too fast. So for probably about the first year, six months to a year, I kept going back into Sudan, northern Uganda. And I was feeding people. You know, at that time in the in the war area of the rebels, the rebels were uh, looting and, and robbing and uh, taking the food from the farmers and the villagers. So there was a lot of people going hungry. So I was going back into those areas and feeding people. You know, that was the big thing. And, and then and then all of a sudden I found myself rescuing children. We had to have a place for the children, and that's when God spoke to me to build the children's village. The actual children's village, I remember the day he stopped me in the bush. I had some other soldiers with me, and he stopped me, and I actually thought, oh, because I'd always hear God in the bush, you know. 
I thought, oh, God, God wants me to stop. There's going to be a fight here. And as soon as I get out of the truck, God says, this is where I want the children's village. Hmm. And I remember looking up in the air and I said, God, do you know where I'm at? Because I was right in the middle of a war zone. So I made arrangements, took me a couple of weeks to make arrangements on the land. When we started building on the land, the government even come out, or the so-called government at the time, and they said, Sam, you can't build here. They said, the rebels will kill you. And I threw my tools down. I had my hand, and I said, I know. I know what you're saying. Tell God, because God said he wants it here, you know. But it's something to this day, as I said, it's, it's one of the largest working orphanages in South Sudan. At what point was there a realization that there was going to be a movie about you and your life and, and you know, the machine gun preacher? I'm sure you heard of Dateline NBC. Have you heard of Dateline NBC? Maybe once or twice. Just a couple times. <laughs> well, anyways, in 2004, they were going into Sudan. They needed a somebody to uh, be their guide. They needed somebody to come in to kind of do okay like the security forum so they went to the government which there was no government at that time and the government said well listen why don't you get a hold of this guy he's a preacher sam childers so i'd done security for him when they were in there doing their story on joseph coney that was the leader of the lra yeah i remember him they said wait a minute they said are you the, are you this guy everyone's talking about the machine gun <laughs> preacher and I tried to keep it quiet back then, you know, and, and I said, yeah. And they said, well, do you mind if we do a little bit of shooting on you, you know? And I said, yeah, it's okay. So here when the story come out, they'd done 30 minutes on Joseph Coney, and then they'd done 30 minutes on the preacher that was so-called hunting him down. That aired in July of 2005. And a matter of fact, you can actually, to this day, you can still Google it on the internet, and it was a, it was it was amazing uh, uh, story. And my life blew up at the time. I mean, literally, totally blew up. People wanted to shoot movies. People wanted to do documentaries. I mean, it was just unbelievable. And I believe when God opens up a door for us, we need to be very careful on our decisions. So I went to a guy that I knew that was in the industry, uh, in the movie industry and in book industry and everything. And, and I asked him, I said, Tim, I said, can you help me here? What should I do? And he said, Sam, you need to write a book. And he said, your life has always been just an unbelievable story. Write a book. And if that book is any good, Hollywood's going to approach you. And if Hollywood would do a movie, then at the same time the movie's getting started or, or going on, you need to do a documentary and write another book. And that was exactly what I did. And, and I remember the last thing he said to me, he said, and if any of it's any good and you make it that far, there's a very good chance they'll want to do a part two. And I'm in the middle right now of dealing with Hollywood on a part two, okay, Machine Gun Preacher. If you were to have, I mean, I'm thinking about it, I would love to have The Rock play me in my life story. Did you think that uh, Gerard Butler was ever going to be the one who'd play you? No, I would have never thought <laughs> that at all. You, you know, the first person they approached was uh, Russell Crowe. And uh, uh, his agency or his agent wanted too much money. Then the second one was 
Gerard Butler. You know, I was a little concerned because I didn't know who he was. Now, my daughter naturally knew who he was. <laughs> yeah. And uh, she, I, I had to laugh. She said, Gerard Butler, Gerard Butler. And then she said, why would he want to play my dad? <laughs> you know, so, but I was concerned because of his accent. You know, his, his accent was just an unbelievable, strong Scottish accent. But I don't think anybody could have done a better job than Gerard now that I look back at it. Let's talk about your Why Me moment. It is the Why Me podcast, and I'm sure you had a lot of these moments. Were there any times in a low or in a high of your life that you asked of the Lord, Why Me? Yes, absolutely. I believe that everybody will say that. I believe that a non-believer, a total atheist, when they have something really bad happening to them, they'll they'll say, Why Me, Lord, you know? Mm -hmm. And... uh, so, yeah, I've, I've had it happen to me in good times and bad times. You know, i just done a conference in Switzerland uh, for a big church organization. Uh, I just did it a few months ago, and when I walked in, you know, there was the room was full of pastors and leaders of churches and probably about 4,000 people. And uh, anyone that knows me, I'm, I'm, I'm a, a biker, you know, I dress like a biker, you know, and I walk in and half the people are dressed in suits. The other half is dressed in nice clothes. You know, they're dressed in dress clothes. And here I am. I was chosen to come in and speak to all these leaders. And as I was walking up, I was thanking God. But I, I did say those words. Why me, Lord? Why me? And then after I preached the message, you know, and seen the people weeping and crying, and it was just unbelievable, the move of God, you know. And it still makes you say, why me? And I think sometimes we say it when things are going bad. But I know I say it a lot when things are just amazing. You know, God, why did you choose me, you know? You have this uh, way about you, this look about you that, I mean, machine gun preacher fits. If it was me, I would be like the water, the water gun boy. <laughs> Put some holy water in there. You can do some damage. Amen. There I love you go. that. I was going to ask, because you had that moment at church where the evangelist, you know, he said over you, you're going to Africa. You know, you're going to be a part of a war, and that was 20-some-odd years ago. Have you been in touch with that evangelist since? You know, yeah, I've seen him, you know, quite a few years ago. Uh, Unfortunately, he's working in another part of the world. You know, he's doing a lot of work in Finland now. Okay. So, So I haven't seen him for quite a few years. I haven't talked to him in some time, you know. But when I do see him, you know, I always thank him. And a matter of fact, I, I have a lot of ministers in my life that help to mentor me. The problem is with being the evangelist uh, with the name, okay, and stuff that I have, it's hard for me to go to a church and get fed. Because usually when I go to that church, the first thing they want to do is ask me to come up front and preach. So, you know, most of my uh, most of my feeding I get from watching TV evangelists, and most of my feeding I get from being friends with other pastors. And uh, so, so I got quite a few people in my life that I pick up the phone and call and stuff when I need to need to be mentored. 
So at the age of 11, as we go back, you know, this is when you started on a, a different path in smoking and marijuana. Uh, your, your mom, bless her, she's, you know, such a sweet lady. Your dad, he understood what was going on. What is your parents' reaction to now that you've made these changes and, you know, you are the machine gun preacher? You know, my dad has been dead for a number of years. My, my mom is just amazed that things went the way they did. I mean, she's, she's so thankful for the, uh, it was prophesied over her when she was carrying me in the womb that her son was going to be a preacher. Then it was prophesied again when I was standing beside of her at an altar when I was like three, four years old. So it was prophesied to her many times that I was going to be a preacher. And, you know, the thing about her is even when I was a criminal, when I was running drugs, selling drugs, she still kept that faith. She still kept that faith. She still kept what God spoke, you know. And uh, she's 80-some years old today, and, and uh, I mean, she still comes and hears me preach, you know, every time she can, you know. And, and she, she ends up supporting the work we do in Africa. She's just an amazing woman. How can we get involved with what you're doing? You know, we have an office here in Canada now. So there is an Angels of East Africa, Canada. Uh, we have uh, uh, Angels of East Africa, UK, Angels of East Africa, Poland, Angels of East Africa, USA is like the mother office, uh, Angels of East Africa, Australia. So we have offices all around the world now. The biggest thing is, uh, is always keep us in prayer. Uh, naturally, the second thing is, okay, like finances. So... Uh, you can go to our website. You can you can go to Facebook Angels of East Africa Canada Facebook. That's the office in Canada. If if somebody wants to get involved right away and donate, you can go to uh, to like the machinegunpreacher.org. That's probably the easiest way to give. Mm. Machinegunpreacher.org, and it's a hundred percent safe. You can go on there and you can make a donation and. It doesn't have to be big. You know, a lot of people, they say, oh, I can't donate very much money, so they do nothing. you got to remember, our, our organization, Africa Alone right now, cost me over $50,000 a month with no new projects. Hmm. That's just to run our work in Africa. And most of that money comes in every day by $20 and $50, you know. So people, people just making a pledge. A small pledge is why we're still saving children. You can check out the book, Another Man's War. Follow him on Twitter. It is at Machine Gun Preacher, as uh, Sam had mentioned as well, machinegunpreacher.org. Sam, we appreciate you taking a minute. Thank you so much, and God bless. Thank you for tuning in to an old episode, a past guest of our Why Me Project rerun. Something that we're starting now because there are so many episodes that we really did love. And they've kind of disappeared from the digital world. And speaking of digital world, I did a little recon. There are at least nine different platforms in which you can listen to the Why Me Project podcast. Okay. So there's no excuses. But, I mean, some of the main ones like Apple Podcast and or Spotify. And you could always head to our social media accounts to stay up to date as each and every Wednesday we have a brand new episode for Why Me Project. And you can also let us know if there's someone that you would like to hear on a future episode. At Why Me Project on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, Why Me Project at Outlook.com. And of course, as always, faithstrongtoday.com. 